Let me take you by the hand and lead you through the streets of Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Ed Fringe podcast. This particular Highlights Reel is about performers at the Fringe and I interview some performers as well as reviewers, people that started off iconic aspects of the Fringe like the Free Fringe or have been going to the Fringe traps for years. I talked to Izzy Sooty, Mervyn Stutter who's had a showcase on the Fringe for years, Peter Buckley Hill, Nathan Caton, Earl Oaken who's been going to the Fringe since the 1960s, Tony Law, Simon Munry. In this mashup there's loads of people, it's forthcoming attractions of the uh, interviews that are coming up over the next weeks and months on the Ed Fringe Festival podcast. I hope you enjoy it, and I will speak to you at the end of the podcast briefly just for a quick sign-off. Okay, enjoy this cornucopia of interviews around the Fringe and performers at the Fringe. Morslet had a 360-degree balcony and the stage was below that balcony so people could and did drop stuff on you solid or liquid it didn't matter they would drop all sorts of stuff on you as you performed if you got them on a bad night and many nights were bad nights especially the uh, uh, the weekend uh, um, the only reason people performed there is you had about a 10% chance of winning them i thought i would have a strategy um and um and this was my strategy. Um, I went to there's a, there's a shop near Euston Station um, that uh, specialises in this sort of thing, and uh, good for those who like that sort of thing. Um, uh, their, their slogan is turning beautiful men into beautiful women. Uh, and I paced up and down this shop for half an hour before summoning the courage to go in. And say my prepared speech was oh, I, I respect what you do but do what you do is, is, is not what I do but nevertheless for completely different purposes I would like a suspender belt and a pair of fishnets please <laughs> I went in and, uh, and uh, you know, the speech went out of the window and I told them what I wanted and they said certainly sir would you like knickers with that and I said um, <laughs> no thank you I bought this you know, you know, outside suspender belt and fishnets and put them on under my trousers for appearance at the bear pit so that if slash when things went wrong I could just lower the trousers reveal the stockings and suspense and get off on a cheap laugh um, and the gods were with me and uh, no one believes this wasn't a plant uh, but you know I got on there I was struggling as one always did uh, um, at the bear pit and this female heckler, I swear I didn't plant her, came out of nowhere and shouted, show us your knickers. And I thought, yes! Yes, the gods are with me! I don't believe them, but they're with me! Which is the best sort of gods to have, really, isn't it? And, and accordingly I did, and it got the laugh I wanted, and from there on they were on my side. I still got that suspender belt somewhere. I don't. I have worn it. I hate to add. For I think probably since. I suppose the weirdest thing uh, in my mind. I was in the audience. Uh, um, was, was when they were giving uh, Dan Antopolsky a hard time, and uh, he recited one of Shakespeare's sonnets. 
just for the hell of it, just for the appropriate thing. I think it was, uh, I think it was my mistress' eyes and nothing like the sun. Uh, and how did that go down? Um, to general bafflement, but Dan got some satisfaction out of it, which is the main thing. You know? uh, I thought it was a touch of genius, really. Right, okay, you don't like me, eat the bard. <laughs> and the stuff he saw had better be good, because he'd worked damn hard for it, and the review existed to warn him against substandard work that he would waste his money on. And you can quite see why that would be so. But the free fringe kills all that because now everybody can come and see for themselves and if they do not like it, they have lost nothing but their time. They can make their own minds up. And that is much better because there's no such thing as objectively good and objectively bad, especially in comedy. Um, there are famous names, and I will not name them, famous names, who when they started out, people would say, oh, I'm not appearing on a per bill with that person. They're rubbish. They kill the gig. And 20, 30 years later, those same people are saying, oh, well, I always knew he was good. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you did not. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, um, no, but there's no such... Thing. I think if you're inside it, I think some people think Edinburgh's like one hour's work a day, but even if you're not flooring for yourself, which I was lucky enough not to be, um, I was still so... They don't, you don't seem to have any time. You, you do another show, they try and sell tickets, and you've got, you get a bad review, and then you feel so caught up about it, and it takes quite a lot of emotional energy, I think. It seems like sometimes like the whole show is so flimsy, it could just all crumble away in a single moment. Because um, there's nothing tangible about it. It's not like you've made a hoover or something and you're showing it at a convention it exists. It's just you going on stage. So it's... I did Alternative Comedy Memorial Society, which is this sort of collective run by John Luke Roberts and Tom Tuck and has a lot of a pool of different acts who perform there and we did a show in the Pleasance Dome and um, it just felt everything seemed to come together perfectly, it's just nothing really on paper it would just look like a gig but the audience understood what we were trying to do, it's quite an experimental gig, the audience really went with it it was on quite late at night, the audience was just the right level of drunk um, and everything that everyone did, it was like they were all in their element. And I looked around and I thought, oh, these are all like my best friends in comedy and we're all on together and we all do stuff that's sometimes a bit offbeat and, you know, but we've all kind of found each other. It was just a really great moment. And um, sometimes that happens, the audience... That's the best that thing about stand-up when it goes well. It's like there's a kind of communion, I think, between the audience and the performer or performers, and that's what you want every time, and you might only get it like one time out of 50 perfectly, really, where everything's right from the beginning and you can't quite put your finger on why, but then that's when you sort of find this extra 20% within yourself that you didn't know you had. I think there was a, I think there was a venue halfway down Victoria Street called the, the Music Box, possibly in the early 90s, and I know Malcolm Hardy put on uh, a show there with Charlie Chuck and with Ricky Grover, and uh, 
I don't know if it was on that occasion or some other year when uh, Ricky Groover uh, had an encounter with the comedian uh, Ian Cognito. Ian Cognito was was uh, on on some form of uh, medication, possibly drink, uh, and insulted Ricky Groover's wife. At which point, uh, Ricky Groover simply just punched him in the face. Ricky Groover was an ex-boxer, so uh, Ian Cognito went straight down. And uh, nice man, he apologised the next day, but uh, it was a tense moment, I think. The first time I went um, for the whole month was when I did my solo show. And people, they were saying to me, OK, just pace yourself. You know, just be, and I was like, don't worry, man, I'm cool. I, I was, what, 24 or something like that? And I was like, yeah, no, it's fine, man. And I hit the ground running, like, in terms of, like, going out all the time, going to different shows, going to parties and stuff. Um, and, I, like, I think the third week, I lost my voice because I was, I was just going out so much. and Because, like, your thing is... Edinburgh Festival, it doesn't sleep. There isn't like a, a period in the day when there isn't something going on. Maybe between 4am and 6am when everyone kind of just goes to sleep. But after that, there's always something. And so I got, I had too much partying and not enough sleeping. And I lost my voice for the third week. And don't get too drunk. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's one thing I'd say. I got drunk um, my first hour. I went to a foodies festival. And um, they were giving out free tequila. And... It was different, like, different shots, different flavours and all kind of stuff. And I tried a few of them, and then I got to my show, and I was like, whoa, I do not feel good at all, man. Just, like, I don't remember how the show went, but they didn't boo, so I'm, I'm guessing it went well. Um, so, yeah, just enjoy it, but not excessively. Um, I saw a man balance a pram on his chin in the warm-up. Um, yeah, it's part of a street show. Actually, to give him credit, it was actually it was impressive. It was good. Um, yeah, he just got there's a baby in a pram. He took the baby out of the pram, gave it to the parent, and then got the pram. And then you thought, what's he gonna? Do? He's not gonna juggle the pram. Is he? I can need have any juggle. And then he just put it on his head, and you're thinking, what? What's he doing? And then his arm just came out. I was like, oh, he's he's put the pram on his chin. And yeah, it was it wasn't. Um, but I don't think it was a st- like a inside job like I don't think the baby was part of the whole magic stuff it was a genuine trick I don't know did that yeah that was probably the most impressive thing I've seen in the warmer oh no this has been another one um again is that no it was just a tonic at the caves um Sean Walsh was doing his set and John Robbins hope you don't mind don't mind me mentioning their names um got on the mic I was off stage and he goes, uh, Sean. And Sean, he stopped his set. He's doing his set. He's going, well, he goes, what the hell? And then John goes, um, well, why did you sleep with my ex-girlfriend and then not call her again? And the whole went, like, And then John Robbins, um, he, uh, <laughs> he proposed a wrestling match on stage to settle, the, settle their, their beef at Fair and Square. And um, <laughs> Sean Walsh, he, like, he backed up his set. And as he was coming off, uh, John came on right and ripped his shirt off and just took like a, a wrestling pose, like like to do battle. And Sean just walked off, and then I just remember like been there after the gig, and Sean just starts like going, "Mate, that is bang out of order." And <laughs> John was like pissing himself, and the audience loved it as well. That's that, that's probably one another wild thing that I've seen in Edinburgh. I. I... <laughs> I have been a lifelong Dan Kitson fan. Um, 
and his uh, his transition to I, I remember I think when he won the Perrier, uh, which he accepted clutching a bottle of Evian, which I I thought oh, there's a clue here, isn't there? Um, and then the next year, when they, everyone expected him to come back and do a, a comedy show, he came back and did storytelling, I think. And then it wasn't soon after that he turned up and did a show, a, a theatre show. And I have always been a fan of his uh, stand-up, and I'm a total fan of his theatre pieces. Um, but uh, what I liked about Dan was he, he, he wasn't aggressive or full-on. Uh, he had uh, a, a lovely delivery courtesy of his... Um, not very heavy, but a little hint of stammer. And uh, and that lovely fetching thing where he's always just pushing his glasses back up his nose. And and he would just, he would question the, the heckler and, and just, just take him apart quite quietly because there's a massive brain in there. Uh, so conceptually, the bloke would be destroyed quite, quite quickly. Um, and he wasn't short on contemporary reference either. I just found his um, ability quietly to control a quite noisy... Um, audience, uh, uh, fantastic. So I, I, if Dan was on, I was always an extremely happy man. Mm. Uh, he's, I have to just make sure that this is. Yes, the, the, the fringe, the comedy end of the fringe, which can dominate because it's good publicity. It's simple. Comedians are one person. It's all, it's all very portable, and and of course, sometimes there's publicity off the back of what they're saying because they're being incredibly naughty, rude, offensive, whatever, uh, or perceived to be. Let me put it that way. Um, but there are people, managements now take their comedians up there purely to drive them towards TV. People are doing chat shows to try and get a chat show on TV. There's so many of the performances in the, the comedy variety end of the market, which is just looking for television and uh, making the career bigger in that way. Um, and yet, if you sometimes look at the older performers who were sort of around and made their names um, uh, earlier days in the 80s and early 90s, who are still up there, to come back year after year because they like it. That, their stuff, and where they play and how they play uh, is as much in touch with the spirit of the Fringe as some of the young 18-year-olds or whatever turning up with a fresh, uh, non-career-based kind of, this is what we've created, this is what we want to show you. They, the same sort of attitudes. There might be more energy in the younger ones than the older ones, but essentially the spirit is there, that it's about being at the festival Maybe, you know, do something different, uh, risk a little, I don't know, things like that. Uh, because the middle stuff that's heading for TV will not risk. It can't risk because that might mean they upset somebody and then the TV won't touch them. Um, one of my researchers, who's a, a reasonably well-known theatre actress, went out to see... No, she, she turned up at one show and they had cancelled. And she thought, ah, oh, I've got a slot in my day. What am I going to do? She looked around and nearby, these aren't in the big venues. This was one of the tucked away places. And I cannot remember where, what it was now. But she saw a show, had a hoarding outside saying Samuel Zuckerman's Warhols. I think I've got that right too. But... And she thought, ah, oh, well, I've got the time. So she popped in, felt her way in. Cause it was a bit odd, very quiet. Nobody was there. There was a little box office and behind it was an an 80-year-old, 80-something lady. Um, and uh, Barbara said, uh, have you got any tickets? Oh, yes, she said, yeah. So she sold her a ticket um, because we didn't have passes those, in those days. Sold her a ticket 
And uh, she said, where is it? It's through those doors. So Barbara, thank you. And then she disappeared. And Barbara stood in the hallway. I thought, mm, okay. Um, I'd better go in. So she went through the doors to be greeted by the lady again, the 80-something lady, who now usheretted her to a seat. The auditorium was reasonable, probably about an 80-hundred-seater. I'm guessing, but it was largish because she felt very isolated. I know that. <laughs> and she said, um, sit where you like. And so she ushered the bar into the centre of about six rows back. And then she disappeared. The house lights went down and the play began. And Barbara was the only person in the audience. And this lady then came on to act with, clearly, we think, and it proved to be the case, her husband. Um, and he was 80-something as well. And uh, that was it. So she watched the play on her own as these two 80-something actors did the play. They'd mounted the thing. They were box office. They were usherette. And as they left, they came around and thank you so much for coming. They were, did all that courteous stuff you'd expect from 80-something people. And uh, Barbara came back and said, we've got to put them on. She said, it's magnificent. She said, he wrote that play in his youth. And now they're putting it on in his 80s. You know, and you're going, oh, God, this is fantastic. This is, I mean, I'd not come across that ever in 20 years. So there was, yeah. <laughs> often after the... Uh, you couldn't get a comedian after these uh, Perrier Awards because they'd spent the entire night drinking and partying. So on the Sunday, the, the final show, really, um, I used to do the awards on a Monday. I'll bring it back to the Sunday now. But the, the, so the Sunday itself was just another day. Um, and you couldn't get them. And... Um, a famous comedian who I won't name, I said to him, he said, oh, I'll do your show. I said, really? You haven't done it in years? He said, no, I want to do it. I fancy it. You know. I said, OK. I said, well, there's only Sunday. He said, I'll do Sunday. I said, you'll be at the Perrier. You'll be, you know, out of it. And he went, no, it'll be fine. I'll be there. And we were over at the church. Um, what's it called? The Roxy now. Just opposite the Pleasance. The Pleasance ran it as Pleasance over the road. And, uh, and people, my team was saying, are you sure? He said, I said, he said he'll be there. I've got a funny feeling he will. And I left the party about one o'clock and he was over at the bar and I looked at him and I looked him straight in the eyes as I was leaving. I said, you won't be there. He said, I will. <laughs> so <laughs> I turned up just before the show as usual and down by the font of the church was this comedian clutching a pint of lager. And he hadn't been sleep or had breakfast. He'd been lagering since the, you know, uh, uh, late that previous night I had a piano at, which was my desk in the wings uh, and uh, the show was going on he, and he kept popping around with a, another pint and he said where am I on he's going you're there number six or whatever and he said fine and I'm just he, I said you're on actually after this he goes okay fine so I'm, I'm in the wings the act's going on it's all going nicely and I could hear a sort of chopping sound and then and, and then a scraping and I looked because I said, do you want some? And he got a 10-quid note rolled up. And he went, <laughs> and I said, no, not for me. He said, OK. And I thought, oh, my God. And um, and then clutching his pipe, I said, you're on. My producer's going, you can't. I said, he's on. He went on. What he was saying, I have no idea. All I could see was the audience who had been sitting back enjoying themselves. Slight consternation, furring of brow leaning forwards towards this gentle yet torrential babble that was coming out. It was okay. I'm sure some of it made sense. It wasn't always funny. I said, get him off, get him off. I said, no, to pick up your point. No. I said, don't get him. It doesn't matter. It's five minutes in the entire run. I said, 
that audience is sitting there. They know who this is. Uh, and the fringe audience would know. The, the, the living room people, TV wouldn't know. He wasn't that sort of famous. I said, they will dine out on this story till Christmas, you know. I don't often get that, but that was a bit of a seat-of-the-pants moment. You probably can't mention that on radio. And the joke shop at the bottom, of course. Uh, if you're very lucky, you might see Jerry Sadowitz in there at, at some point, uh, who is a true magician who truly loves magic. And anybody, you know, if you want to talk to Jerry, you know, no matter how scary he looks as a stand-up, uh, he, you know, he loves to talk to people about, about magic because that is his first and abiding and will be his last love, I think. So you never know. If you're very lucky, or indeed if you just hang out there all the time, you might see Jerry in the joke shop. I like the idea of pacifying an angry Jerry Sadowitz. <laughs> with, with, with card magic. magic. Yeah, it's like a, yes, I know you're enraged, but how did you do the trick with Exactly, yes, yes. <laughs> um, because there's always, you're, there's always the chance of finding your comic. And that's, that's the best. Yeah, discovering something yeah. for you that is Discovering not, something for something yourself. Not sold to you. Yeah, yeah. discovering yeah. something for yourself, because they're the ones that you remember. Um, again, just off uh, the Royal Mile, uh, there's St Mary's Street, which joins up with the Pleasants. And just on the corner of St Mary's Street and the Royal Mile, there used to be a venue called St Mary's Hall. Many, many years ago, a thousand years ago, I was producing a radio show at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, for uh, It was called Festival City Radio. It was Radio Force. They used to split their wavelength during Edinburgh. And I produced a two-hour uh, radio show every morning, every weekday morning. I know, it was fantastic. I lost a stone and a half. But I met some fantastic people. And what? I did. I keep saying this to reviewers, to punters, to everybody. Throw, maybe even throw away newspapers and everything and don't look at, uh, um, don't look at promotional material. Just go, oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, what about that? I went to see, uh, I, I, I was pursued by a, a young guy. <laughs> Those were the days... Uh, who was doing it? Who was producing a show, directing a show, at St Mary's Hall on the corner of um, no longer there, sadly, uh, Royal Mile and St Mary's Street, and I was very much against it because they were posh boys, they were from Oxford, and I made you know like I just made the completely prejudiced and probably a little racist decision that I wasn't that interested in having posh English boys on my radio show, but I eventually listened to the tape that he gave me and almost lost a kidney laughing. They were, it was just hilariously funny. And I went to see the show in St Mary's Hall on the corner of St Mary's Street and the Royal Mile, completely fell in love with them. Not only were they hilariously funny, but at least two of them were drop-dead gorgeous. And one of them was Hugh Grant. It was a show called The Jockeys of Norfolk. And that... You know, so I've always felt, A, that Hugh Grant is a tragic loss. His career in, in film is a tragic loss to sketch comedy. And, you know, again, as a, when I assume complete control of the fringe, I'll be getting in touch with him and saying, come back, just do a week like the good old days. But 
I've always felt that Hugh Grant was my discovery. Because I found him in a, in, a, in a little church hall, you know, on the corner of the Royal Mile. Just wonderful, brilliant. And you should all, there's always going to be somebody there that's, uh, that's a little bit wonderful. And he's not going to be playing the conference centre. And he's not going to be in uh, the McEwen Hall. He's going to be under a pub. or And I mean, there's some wonderful little strange quirky venues like as I say the the fudge shop on the Ramal and they are the ones you should be going to and then there's what was the Gilded Balloon that was a great you know it's it kind of epitomizes the fringe with you know Karen Corrin uh, who is, is somebody who always did and still does take a risk on people that nobody's ever heard of because she in her gut feels that they will be good and and the the gilded balloon was always somewhere uh where you could see new strange wonderful um i remember oh i don't know how many years it is now uh probably 12 years something like that uh i was I, i was reviewing but I was also making a documentary uh, for Carlton Television. So I was hurtling around constantly, you know, kind of under two tons of, of camera equipment. And it was getting, it was about halfway through the fringe. And I was just at the stage where I was thinking, please don't make me go and see another stand-up comic. I'm, I'm losing words to describe them. Even if I like them, I don't know what to say because there's a certain sameness to a stand-up comic. And... Um, I, it was at the Gilded Balloon, so oddly enough, it was a brilliantly sunny day. Uh, I grabbed my ticket from the Gilded Balloon box office, and it was in Gilded Balloon backstage two, which was all the way up the steps at the back of the Gilded Balloon, and uh, I was so grumpy by the time I got there, and I was cutting it very fine. And uh, the person at the door took my ticket and went and said, uh, oh, you know, <laughs> you, you look a bit worn out. I went, yes, 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 I've just got, I'm, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly late. I mean, no, 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 he said, you're not late. It's fine. I went, oh, God. And he said, would you like me to take care of all this stuff? I said, well, that'd be fantastic. And he said, is there anything else I can do to make your day better? And I thought, this is marvellous front of house attention by Gilded Balloon. Well done, Karen Goran. And I said, well, you know, a large Jack Daniels wouldn't go amiss. And he said, would you like ice with that? <laughs> so I said, yes. So he went away with, you know, I got my ticket stub, went in, sat down. And I thought, this is, okay, I'm actually feeling better now. I'm feeling quite good. So I got out my pad and uh, the voice said, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, uh, Adam Hills. And it was the bloke from front of house with a large Jack Daniels on ice for me. And he had no idea who I was. And uh, I thought, oh, this is a bit embarrassing. Um, but luckily enough, it was utterly, utterly brilliant. And about halfway through the show, which I was adoring, he looked over and he said, uh, you're feeling a bit better now? And I went, yes, I am, thank you very much. And he went, what are you writing? And I said, well, I'm actually writing a review of your show. And he went, 
oh, is it a good one? I said, yes, yes, it's okay, it's a good one. He went, oh, I think we have to see it. So he came over, took my pad from my nerveless grasp, read out my notes to the audience and said, oh, I think we can do better than that. So with the help of the audience, he wrote uh, part of the review, which uh, I printed in The Scotsman, uh, because I felt, well, I mean, A, it, it wasn't that witty, but it was heartfelt. And it, it said how fantastic the show was, and it was brilliant. There's Pizza Express. Oh, there's a Pizza Express out there. I like the way that Pizza Express and Nando's are. I know. It's very bad, really bad eating habits come out here. That's the thing. I don't, I probably don't enjoy enough of the, of the, um, uh, of the cultural sides of Edinburgh because I was spending my whole time being self-obsessed and worrying about my show. All I can think of is that is just when I did my first year at the Underbelly when it was really quite, in 2002, and that was the back end, that, that back entrance in. And that was, um, it was this venue that nobody had heard of at the time. So I remember that, I remember still standing outside desperately going, my show's on in 15 minutes and it's, and, uh, and I'd even been nominated for newcomer and I think I was still struggling for numbers. And uh, I remember this one woman came on and her act, her act was just going, are you looking at my tits? Are you look <laughs> and we weren't until she said that. And then, well, then you're kind of left in a, does she want us to? What a, what a, you're looking at my tits. <laughs> That's all it was for 10 minutes, he went off and, hey, well done, because we appreciate everyone having the courage to get up and perform. It seemed quite, uh, so we had people doing some odd poetry, and I don't know what it was. The uh, show's in, Daniel Kitson, uh, um, late in live, when he was, like, being heckled, he was brilliant. Mark Lamar being heckled at late in live. Mm. Uh, he, was, he just started doing the word, and he did, the, he did one of the physically bravest things I've ever seen. And he came on, he was wearing glasses, he started wearing glasses, and, uh, and he was just getting heckled, he was on TV, he was yeah. famous, he was 2am, yeah. just endless heckles, and he, was, he said, alright, I'm putting you on hold, don't deal with one at a time, and he was dealing with these heckles, wittily, sharp. he was always very good, very sharp, fast with his responses, bang, bang, putting these people down, putting them down, putting them down. eventually this bloke at the back shouts out, I'm going to kick your fucking head in, and, and Mark goes, alright then, takes his glasses off, puts them at the side, uh, and this bloke comes from the back. Obviously, he couldn't have seen him because of the lights. Uh, comes from the back, and the whole crowd's going, fight, 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 fight. It was building up fight. This bloke gets up, like, like, tries to grab the mic off him, and uh, Mark, Mark shoves him with his elbow, pushes him back, goes, you can, you can have a fight, and you can't have the mic. You can, you can't have the mic. You can have a fight, but you can't have the mic, and you've got to start it. I'm not starting a fight in front of 200 people. Uh, so then he pushes the bloke behind him, and then he just starts taking the piss out of him with his back to him. With this yeah. bloke who's got up, same sort of size, yeah. so express attention with the audience's backing of beating him up. <laughs> uh, but of course, what happened was the, the bloke lost his confidence, didn't know what to do. He's kind of in the lights and didn't really want to start a fight now. He just felt embarrassed and found that his best way out of it was to stage dive off the stage onto some tables full of glass uh, and then get thrown out by the bouncers. <laughs> and the show carried on. But the, the, the bravery of going, uh, yeah. All right then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to someone you can't see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just turns up as a Cap, huge. Capped off to what they're on. You know, like, because you know, obviously, you've been told about, everyone knows about the, the on your phone thing. You just walk home on your phone. You know, you're not talking to anyone. You mm. have it by your ear, so you don't have to talk to anyone. Yeah. But I saw one comedian walking towards me. He didn't have his phone in his hand. He saw me. <laughs> 
and he scrambled desperately to get his phone out. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have enough time. He went, he went, he's like, there's really hard. Oh, oh, oh. oh, hey, all right, Joe, how's it going? What time's your show? I'm definitely going to come to that. Kill me. <laughs> I really wanted to say, keep going, my friend. I have no issue with keep walking, keep walking. There's this thing, though, as well, that they say that you shouldn't talk about if you've had a bad oh. show. Yeah. Because then people will go and they'll say, oh, such a body had a bad show. And that spreads. Yeah. So people think, oh, they're having a bad time in Edinburgh. But the thing is... You we don't really... Pl- we don't really join in that we no I, I go the other way yeah, and go, want to tell everyone how awful died. <laughs> and we have like people going you, you know people are going to say you died and you go well we did but people like you have you, you <laughs> talk to people and they go how's it going they go yeah yeah it's great yeah really yeah, really good yeah really good and the people you know and like and then at the end they go <laughs> it's been awful <laughs> and you're like I wouldn't have gone around going do you hear uh, do you hear blah blah show's died <laughs> she's done I mean, one of the things that I think always made me laugh because I think it, it represented spirit, the spirit of the uh, of the fringe was a group I think of students. I can't remember the details of this, but they were trying to cut down on expenses, and therefore they had this venue, and they wanted to sleep in it to save money. But they were told by Edinburgh Council that they couldn't because they didn't have a license as a hotel or whatever they only had a license as a venue so they put their thinking caps on and they had ran an extra show it started at midnight it ended at seven and it was called seven hours of restful sleep not only did they have somewhere to sleep but they made money out of it everybody who had nowhere to sleep would turn up pay a quid and lie on the floor for seven hours so i think i think that was i, I mean I don't even remember seeing it, I heard about it, so I hope it's true. But to me, that's what the spirit of the fringe is, stuff like that. Mm. Another thing I remember was her saying it to me once. It was a, well, Anyway, mm. so one night for a fresh-faced American stand-up, who obviously, as many American stand-ups don't do, had done no research. Mm. Thus, his first line turned out to be his last, <laughs> which I'm sure he hadn't planned. Unfortunately, his first line was hi everybody it's great to be here in England <laughs> oh dear and he came off bruised and injured still not knowing why it had happened and I had to explain to him where he was. <laughs> there was there was a point I don't know what it's like now that any church if you had a room with a large wardrobe in it there'd be a show there mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, my, one of my favourite shows was I, he was he was there from 1947 onwards this guy and it was called The Smallest Show in the World or something, and it was one guy on a motorbike. Yeah. It was wonderful. It was really stupid, really silly. I really like silly. And uh, so he'd have a motorbike with a sidecar, and if you sat in the sidecar, it was like a very, very miniature theatre with flock wallpaper and a little tiny chandelier. And everybody else just stood around the, the, the motorbike sidecar while he did this ridiculous sort of 20-minute nonsense. And... Uh, the year I did it, it's just one person on a motorbike. I said, and what's the production this year? I said in a mock serious tone. And with an even more serious tone, he replied, war and peace. <laughs> one person I haven't mentioned who's very important, and I can't remember where because he's run it in various places, but it's a gentleman called Mervyn Stutter. Yeah. 
he, like me, does comedy with music. And he wasn't selling enough tickets to his own show. I think that was the reason for this. And he thought he'd run a sort of Michael Parkinson show, The Fringe, which he called, I don't know what he called, The Best of the Fringe. I think he called it Mervyn Stutter's Pick of the Fringe. That's it. Yeah. Uh, this way he gets a free ticket to go and see any shows that he wants to, which is great for him. He wears a dreadful pink suit and he can do some of his songs in the show every day. He can fill the place out. Hmm. And it's a very good service because because he picks some of the best people around, you can go and see in an hour, you know, six really good bits of which we might say, I've enjoyed the show, but of those six, the one I really want to see is that one, number four. So it helps you, saves you money without you having to spend all the money seeing all of them to find that, yeah, it was all right, but it's not really my thing. But you might find something really you hadn't even thought about going to see because it's not just stand-up shows. It's all sorts of things. Mm. Modern dance, juggling, could be any. Mm. And he, he's given a really good service to the Fringe. I think it's the most important thing, now that the Fringe club isn't there anymore, mm. it's the only place where, without costing you any money, you can do a little bit of your show and then you go outside and leaflet like mad yeah. afterwards yeah. that's the only one he's, it's a really important service that he gives so I, I recommend anybody that they go and um, yeah. see Mervyn Stutter really it can be quite tough in a sort of oh feel sorry for me but you, you loads of things happen I, mean, I remember once the first year I went out there I had a girlfriend um, who was in a, uh, another show and one night, um, I can't remember what I was doing, but she was out at a bar and she got hit on by Steve Coogan, you know, and um, she didn't go back to his hotel um, and came back to me. And I was like, what are you doing? Man, my girlfriend could have fucked Steve Coogan. That is, that would have been, I would have been fired no, out. Obviously, I don't think she had any interest in, in uh, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, no, we were, we were nominated alongside Tim Minchin, um, whatever's happened to him, Mark Watson, the same, Rod Gilbert, a guy called Charlie Pickering, who's got his own TV show in Australia, and, and Tawson Harvey. So, the, you know, and, uh, and who's here in your living room doing the podcast? Only Luke Tawson. Well, Mark's coming later. <laughs> no. Well, he didn't win either, yeah. but he's done all right since. I believe your girlfriend's sleeping with him right now. That's <laughs> why <laughs> so I couldn't make it any earlier. Big value in comedy. Oh, that's big value. That was that a right? year in your Vietnam. That was a scheduled flyering two hours a day. Yes. Yeah. Um, except there was one person who didn't fly her, but it was meant to. And uh, I won't mention that it's Jason Manford. Um, <laughs> Even at that stage, there was a there was a funny incident where he didn't the the people realised he wasn't flying, so they called a meeting to give us all a bollocking, um, and everyone turned up except Jason. And then <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a good just oh, I'm just not going to turn up for the disciplinary meeting, but that's that's held him back. Yes, yeah, I bet he wished he'd flyer now. Yeah, I mean, let's face it: if, if the one show packs in, what's he got to fall back on? 
And there you go. There's a little bit of a mega mix, a little bit of a taste of what's coming up over the next weeks and months. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, for all things Ed Fringe podcast, go to uh, Patreon forward slash Barry fans, and you can get extra bits and bobs there and longer versions of interviews when they come up. Uh, and other podcasts to boot, to boot. Um, and uh, if you like this, I think what people say is rate it. Could you rate it in some way? I mean, that would be great because um, it just means that more people get to hear it. But for now, uh, have a lovely week and I'll see you on the other side of the week for another release. Goodbye, everyone. Join the Patreon. Join the Patreon. Ed Fringe Podcast. Ambient Tales for Traumatised Children The Podcast The Barry Anthology The Barry Anthology Join it Join it If you like what he does Support Barry From just £3 a month All of them Join Barry. Ambient Tales for Traumatised Children. The Barry Anthology. The Ed Fringe Podcast. Join it. Join it today. If you like Barry, support Barry. Be Barry's Peggy Guggenheim. Be a patron of the arts of the Barry Arts. <laughs>